Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is the poet, Helen Shepherd. Helen is the host of the Health Beat Poets podcast on Spotify, a show where writers, performers, and spoken word artists share their take on health and poetry. Helen is a fantastic writer and performer herself. She has read her poetry at various events in the UK and America, everywhere from small cafes to Harvard Medical School. This interview was recorded at the end of October 2021, one month after Helen's debut poetry collection, called Fontanelle, was released. It was also in the middle of a horrific storm, so the internet connection is not the best, and I apologise for any distortion you may hear during the interview. Hello, and thank you for joining me this week. I'm delighted to say my guest is poet Helen Shepherd. Hello, Helen. Hello, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here talking with you, Tom. I'm thrilled that you're here as well. And my first question, as always, is what are we drinking? We are drinking old Jamaican ginger beer with, I've got a slice of capsicum chilli. It knocks a punch, I'm telling you. I can feel my lips fizzing already. <laughs> okay, here we go. And I put my glass Ooh. down without a clunk. Yes, <laughs> good. And, uh, oh, that's going to clear out the nasal passages. Is that medicinal? How did you find this beverage <laughs> as a choice that you'd inflict on yourself? Well, I loved chilli food anyway. And old Jamaican ginger beer has just got such a beautiful flavour, mm. hasn't it? It um, does. It feels tropical and... I can imagine being in Jamaica, even though I've never been, and adding a, an extra slice of chilli. Mm. Whoa, in the winter, it's such yes. a lovely warming drink. It's it's certainly um, a dark and stormy night, and I think this drink <laughs> is blowing our taste buds so that we definitely don't feel uh, like we're in a cold, wet Bristol. And is this a treat drink for you? Is this a regular drink for you? And how long ago was it that you first started drinking it? Ginger beer. I think I've been drinking probably for the last 10 years. When I perform poetry, I can't touch alcohol, else I'm completely useless. <laughs> and um, you wouldn't want to see, really. And ginger beer, it does make you cough. <laughs> so it's probably not the ideal drink, but I love one after I perform poetry. It just cools your throat and picks you up and it's a real tonic, I guess. When you've got that adrenaline rush and you've yes. done a live performance, it seems to level things out a bit. Yeah. Where I'm speaking to you now, uh, is this where you do a lot of your writing? Is this your writing desk? I would say it's my writing desk. Whether I write at my desk, that's another story. So with your poems, where, where do you like to write best? Where, where do you find creativity happens for you? Walking. If I pack a notepad, a pen, and I just go for a walk, I can feel the um, hornets in my head that yeah. I, I want to start writing. And if I'm at home, I feel a bit tied down. And I think the rhythm of walking, whether it's urban or mm. taking myself off to a woodland, I, I feel the the rhythm is worked for me and I just maybe sit on a bench or I'll lean against a bridge or a tree or wherever I am and something comes into my head, I just write it down. Oh, nice. 
And it's a stormy night, so I have to ask, is that an all-weathers thing? Do you find that you can only write when you're outside? And how do you deal with rain? It's all-weathers. They say there's no such thing as bad weather, it's just bad clothing, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> so I'll find a place which has got either shelter so that I can sit there and watch the storms and, and it is thrashing a whole hail holy out there at the moment. I've got a lot of places that I go where I know I won't be bothered by people, yeah. particularly people I know, because I can't hold a conversation when I'm writing right. at any level, really. It's like I, I just can't remember words or social <laughs> niceties or anything. So I have to go somewhere where I'm, I know I'm going to be alone. I've got mm -hmm. the benefits of sitting in a sheltered place, I often take either some homemade cake or and coffee or treats to have nice. while I'm writing outdoors. Oh, wow. That sounds like really evocative. I think, you know, sort of writing in a sheltered place in a storm, taking treats and uh, nourishment to sustain you is is a wonderful image. Uh, mm. So how long do these writing sessions last? Then? I mean, if you're taking food with you, it sounds like it's not a five-minute stroll down the road. It's mainly for the walk because I know for my mental well-being that going off for a walk regularly is something that when I can feel one foot in front of the other, and that's really calming. Mm -hmm. And I think then because I'm calm and in a rhythm of walking, then my mind can be imaginative. Mm -hmm. I don't tell anyone where I'm going either, Tom. <laughs> no, I, and my I, phone off, it's my little bubble and igloo, really. Oh, lovely. So on these walks, are you writing full poems or is it more snippets of ideas and just formulating little sections? I guess it's mind mapping where I'll just write lots of words down or phrases that come into my head. I sometimes go with an idea mm -hmm. for a poem or sometimes I go with a completely clear head. Okay. When you have an idea for a poem, what is it that marks it as something that you think, I want to write a poem about this? What is it that grabs you? Is it a memory? Is it just an emotional feeling? What turns just a you know a, a piece of whimsy into? No, I actually want to write creatively about this. Sometimes it, it's a memory, but not a fully formed memory. It's just a, like a picture. Mm. So I'll, I'll get a little picture in my head. I'm I'm pretty visual, in that I'll I'll see something in my mind, and and then the feelings and the emotion join the picture so it could be that I might see a tree that I remember mm -hmm. seeing either with people and and then I might end up writing a bit about the tree but then I'll end up talking all about the root structure and then I'll probably go on to talking about blood vessels and the heart I guess I start with something visual and if I'm seeing people walking around and they remind me of something, then I'll write about that. I absolutely love writing, I guess, narratives. Yeah. A lot of my poetry is narratives. So I put loads of ideas down and then I see where it goes. But often it is like a spidergram okay. and then develops from there. And when you're mapping out these poems and grouping things together, how long does that process usually take from a mind map to, okay, this is the length it, it, it's going to be? 
interesting question, Tom, because <laughs> I'll, I'll write phrases down and then I'll join it and then make it into somebody of poetry. And then what I do, it's like having a rubber. Mm. I'll look at it and then I'll take out everything that I think is superfluous. Okay. And then I realise what I'm writing about and it could be something completely different to what I wrote. I thought it was about originally. And then I will add more to it, more detail. And then I'll start putting back in probably some of the things I took out. I also, I'm not sure if this is a usual thing, but I always write in a notebook with a pen. Mm. And I write, if I'm going to write something more formed, then I'll write from back of my notebook towards the front. And this could be just my interpretation, but I think I am less bothered with a, my critic voice when I write that way. Okay. It's as if I'm going into my subconscious. And then what happens is I'll put it on the computer, I'll edit it, I'll rewrite it. Some poems will come fairly quickly and others... There was one poem that I wrote, took 10 years and 36 edits. Wow. And it's done really well for me. It's probably my most travelled poem. So it, it varies a lot, really. I mean, they're never really finished, are they? So mm. I think there's still words, even when they've been published, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take that word out or switch that <laughs> little bit around. I mean, that's, that's the key thing about poetry, isn't it? I always... Uh, remember my English teacher at school telling me that writing is about finding uh, the right words in the right order and poetry is finding the best words and putting them in the best order and yeah. it, it, it's very much the distillation of an idea and a concept. Because of having been a midwife in the past and coming to writing um, fairly later on, the writing is very different because I have to hear it and I'm still really excited about the process of being creative mm. and the sounds it's going to have strong sounds as well because I came into poetry through open mic going and hearing spoken word poets so that was my introduction into poetry and so if if it connects with others and it's got a musicality to it I guess but also a good story mm. then I feel like yeah okay poem you've birthed <laughs> and I, I guess as you said that you came to poetry through sort of spoken word and open mic nights do you always have it with every single poem that you write that it's to be performed I don't go out to perform them but what happens is I'll write it and then I'll go for an open mic night and then I'll I'll perform it, I'll read it out loud, and then I can hear it, I can hear my own voice, and then I can gauge the audience reactions, mm. and I can hear all the hesitations, that rhythm isn't quite right. So I guess that's my next order of writing, really. Oh, so, so part it's, of your drafting process is to actually read it in front of a room full of strangers? Yes. Wow. They're not all strangers, no. but I don't have that hesitation of sharing my work at all. Mm. 
is an interesting one, isn't it? Because someone said to me the other day, I'm trying really hard to be a proper poet. I thought, I have no idea what you're talking about because I don't know what a proper poet is. Yeah. Because I have these poems that come out, they're part of me, and then they're released. Mm. And they're not connected with any past experiences of poetry. I didn't do poetry at school. The first time I knew that there was such a thing as a poem was in my 40s. Had you tried any other creative outlet before, before poetry? No, no, I hadn't. But I have since. So over the last year, I've been doing some life drawing and I've got a passion for bodies and skulls and anatomy. And so drawing the human form, I was surprised how easy I took to it. But I guess through work, I've seen a lot of naked bodies through nursing and midwifery, and that's imprinted on me. I got invited to do poetry for a life drawing class, a celebration. And then I found myself just sketching while the life models were posing and writing more poetry. I was surprised how they both went together so well. Yeah, that that sounds um, not something that you would traditionally pair together. Is that something that you think you'll continue with in the future? Yeah, I'll definitely go back to it and we'll probably run workshops. I also think I've always collaborated since I've started writing poetry. And I think that really feeds into my creative process, but also... Poetry to me is community, so I I could never even consider writing on my own and keeping it to myself. Yeah, I think a lot of people with fear of failure, you know, sort of want to revise and revise and revise before anyone hears it. And I think you've probably blown a few minds of our listeners with the fact that during the drafting process, you're sharing work knowing that you're going to go back and revise it again. And I think it is something that is very liberating, or it sounds like it's very liberating uh, Mm. to do, because that feedback is really helping you engage of whether something's good or not. But not having that fear of, you know, if it falls flat, it's like it doesn't take away your validity as a poet. You know, because I I think it's a very brave and courageous thing to take something that you're – in the process of revising and distilling down into its final form. One thing I was going to ask, because you've written poems for anthologies and other people's collections. Like you say, collaboration is a big part of uh, your process. What's the process like and which do you have a preference over writing for yourself and going for a walk and just seeing what comes versus the focus of writing to a theme and writing to to someone else's requirements other than your own? Um. It does put more pressure on you the, and you've got someone else's expectations there. I mean, you are right. I have no fear of failure with poetry because I, I think a poem to me is probably something very different to anyone that's done poetry at school. I did song lyrics. I wasn't streamed to do any literature or Shakespeare or anything. So I think poetry to me feels maybe very different. There's no pressure for it. 
the writing to with a collaboration, you do have to be none of us are an entity on our own, are we? Mm. So I would say that writing, uh, uh, because I've always been influenced by listening to others' poetry, and recently I had to write a poem with a historian and two musicians on the Bedminster coal mining disaster. So the historian gave me a lot of their facts and I thought this is facts but it's not story Mm. and I had to really think. I think I've, because of being a midwife, I've got quite a strong empathetic way about me so I can be in the moment and Mm. I think I could close my eyes after reading lots about coal mining and families and imagine myself there and then I can imagine the smells and the um the sensory stuff around and the noises and I think that really made writing the poem much simpler plus there's a lot of photographic evidence so I wrote just six photographs about different aspects of coal mining and, and then the historian and I shared what we were putting in it. I guess one of the processes is knowing what I'm putting is in as a poet and what they're putting in as a historian so that you're not repeating yourself mm. or sharing the same images. So that took quite a lot of working closely together. And, and I think I'm probably more used to editing than the historian. So it was it's really important to be really sensitive about other people's, mm. what they bring. When the music got added, wow, <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely, and, and that wasn't added till we'd done quite a lot of work on putting our, weaving the poetry and the hi- historical aspects of it together. Blew my mind. It was fantastic. So that was open collab with Jake and yeah. Charlie and Gary Atherton was a historian. For anthologies and writing to a theme, I mean, there's a lot of anthologies I just don't feel engaged with. I think there was one on elements, which I could write about elements. And nature poetry has really taken off and eco-poetry. I'm really early stages of dipping into that. And um, I think because I'm more influenced by people rather than nature, even though I walk in nature and it's really integral to my creative processes, I think as a creative, you've already thought about a lot of things. So you're not having to do all the work from the beginning because you can tap into some of those roots that you've already laid down. Yeah, and I was just wondering about where you were dealing with that coal mining disaster and obviously having a historian there giving you lots of the facts, but did you feel a pressure to do your own research or once you'd written it to make sure, as well as it being an emotional evocative piece, that there was a degree of accuracy or, or was it just constantly collaborating with the historian throughout that you felt that you didn't have to do any additional research? No, I had to do loads of research because I had some facts that they felt were really important. But what I didn't have is the poetic language from them. When there's an explosion and the long whistle blows and that silence, it's so important to put the silence into your poems. So... 
And I think you can be tempted to fill them up with telling and showing and imagery and metaphors. Actually, sometimes you just have to be silent Mm. and it's stripping it back and sometimes not giving it all away and letting the listener and the reader do quite a lot of work themselves. Mm. So I guess that's my bit about putting everything in, stripping it right back and then adding stuff is about then having, I guess, value in the reader. Because I, oh, this might be interesting to say, but one of my tips would be not to write for anybody, to write for yourself, because you're just writing whatever original thought is in your head. And we may sometimes think that our thoughts aren't original, but actually we're the only ones having them. So all the other, all the pictures that look like that original thought are valuable. And I guess lots of different poets could write about the same thing. We would all write completely different. But yeah, I definitely have, feel I have to do lots of research around it. And even though I wrote a poem about my first delivery and I was obviously there and um, knew the processes and the anatomy and everything I still felt to take myself out of it I needed to do a lot of reading so I guess that's part of it is the reading around a topic is to taking yourself out of your poem for a while so, so you have um, researched uh, or, or done research for a variety of poems for the ones that you've done for just your own ideas as well as ones that you're doing in collaboration with others. Yeah, yeah, I probably do quite a lot of research and I'm doing one for the Working Class Festival at the moment and I'm reading all sorts of different articles and research articles and essays on working class writers, even though I've got an idea what I want to do for it. It's, yeah, writing is all about community and the more voices I'm listening to and reading and thinking about, the more I'm able to write in a, a more fuller way, really. So I, I guess from that and your comments earlier about collaboration, it's rather than having a static author narrative voice, you like to broaden um, your approach to poetry and actually almost encompass a variety of voices in the narratives of your poetry. Yeah, I guess that's right, actually, for the coal mining one. Although it was my tone, it had that consistency of me being the writer. I did want to take people down the pit and show them what it was like. And I did want to take them into people's home, family homes, and also to share with them the aftermath of the disaster. So I guess... It is partly about place and people, you know, what's going on between people. I mean, I clearly have a fascination for people and Mm. people watching. So I think I can bring elements of that into historically as well, because I've written quite a lot of historical poems. Mm. And I think probably you'll get my voice, but you'll get the historical place yeah I I guess that's what I was leading to is that you do have a stylistic voice the narratives are not always from your perspective especially when you're doing historical poetry as part of your research when doing historical poetry uh, it's making sure that 
the people you're representing their voice as part of it too, I, I think. Yeah, it's a big discussion at the moment around writing about other people's lives and not appropriating their stories. Mm. So I can write from my interpretation and what's going on and give a tone, give an... I guess an indication that I'm a witness, but I'm not writing from my voice. So yeah. I, I guess I can, I'm a witness really. Mm. So if I'm writing about, there's a poem about my great grandparents. I mean, I never met them, mm. but I know some of the stories, but also I can give a, a, a voice that holds a story, a yeah. bit like a narrator, I suppose. Yeah, but you, you don't try and in inhabit you know you don't give a direct voice to your great-grandparents for example but you like you say your witness you, you portray your idea of what it would be like to witness certain events going from the third person perspective hold on just go back to my english teachings it's yeah it's third person you're, you're outside looking in yeah but not too outside and it's interesting because some of my collection is about birth. And another part of my writing is I'm quite visceral about my descriptions. Mm. So I'm describing what's happening inside bodies and the, I guess, the journey of the baby coming out and even doing internal examinations. I can describe that I'm painting a picture which means it's quite an invasive procedure, some of the things I write about. I guess there is always a risk when you're writing from down to the bones, mm. which is what I'm fairly known for probably, is that you don't want to re-traumatise anyone yeah. or, I guess, alienate your reader. But I have, I think, because of my style, I can take people to quite quite to the bone places and they're still held and I think also my nurse's sense of humor means it's not I don't hold them in a dark place yeah. they have opportunities for that light and shade I think that's something I've probably learned because I started writing after burnout and I think I've really had to think about taking care I guess that goes from the beginning of our conversation taking care of myself in my writing yeah. And being vulnerable and taking other people to a vulnerable place and not being scared of that. But also we've got responsibility not to protect people, but to be present, feel a presence while they're reading your poetry or hearing yeah. it. I think with the, the visceral nature of some of the birthing poems, a fantastic portrayal for people who are not familiar with like realistic childbirth i mean when you mm -hmm. see childbirth in cinema and on television it's just okay you push for about 10 seconds and then you have a baby and seeing it portrayed beautifully viscerally in poetry is a unique angle it's not something i'd ever mm -hmm. seen before and i think it's a fantastic thing that you are able to do because it will resonate with people it resonates with me who's never had children doesn't want to have children it kind of reassures me as a horror fan who doesn't want children <laughs> I, I think i approach those poems in a different validating way for my lifestyle but i think people who've had traumatic childbirths can know they're not alone yeah there's something 
absolutely magical about the human body because mm. my collection's birth to death and everything in between, really. And it's interesting because I think about a quarter of the people who have bought it have been men mm. in different stages and experiences in their life. And I think one of the things that really interests me and certainly having been present when people have gone through the most extreme experiences through illness and trauma is how the body and the mind want the best for the person Mm. because they are that person. We are going through COVID times as Mm. well. And a lot of people who have been through COVID say they, they can't remember the most traumatic parts of their care. And the body does have a huge, and the mind has a huge capacity to work together to protect that person from remembering and you know reliving and re-traumatizing themselves Mm. each time I think that's one of the things that really fascinates me and keeps my writing visceral but also respectful of what the body and the mind can Mm. do in collaboration together I think that probably comes across quite strongly in my writing but it's also in the worst of times we can as you say, we can witness horror and we can witness trauma. And and because we're witnessing the whole thing, we're not experiencing it. Mm. So whatever we experience in life, we experience on a completely different level to the person that's witnessing it. Yeah, And that's quite a fascinating one when you're trying to write something that's authentic and true to yourself but also have an impact on people reading it because it is, although it's only poetry and there's a tiny amount of people who are poets in the world, even though we think we're a bigger number than we are, it all comes down to connecting, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. And I just want to say that for people who haven't read your poetry, not not to put them off, I think the style, and I, I think this definitely comes through with your tone as we're talking now, is that, it's an unflinching portrayal. It's not a provocative actor shock portrayal. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you're not afraid of you know, the, the darker elements, the more visceral elements, but it never feels gratuitous. You're going for accuracy in an emotive portrayal of a very life-changing moment, you know, and it's a very key part of the human experience for a lot of people. I realise I'm speaking on your behalf there, which is terrible hosting. But <laughs> I do agree with you. If you're going to write something and you're not writing for yourself or others, who am I writing for? I'm writing to capture things that have been really important to me. By doing that, even if it is strong themes do come in through my writing, I can also talk about, I think there's one poem called Stitches, which is where a grandfather has got a pheasant and been preparing it for the dinner table. And a little girl goes and she has a way of putting the pheasant back together. And then you see her later in life using the skills that she's used as a child. And I guess in some ways... Because I didn't do poetry at school or literature, I guess my route in has been through fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales. Mm. And I do a bit of horror. I like to be a bit shocked. 
with what I'm reading. I also like really awkward and unpredictable characters to Mm. read about. And I I think maybe all those influences of reading fairy tales are are fairly dark and really take you in. And I think if you're, if you know, in life we have so many experiences, it feels sometimes like we're living in a fairy tale, Mm. not with all the fluffy marshmallow stuff. A, a true grim fairy tale, yeah, life lessons. Yeah. Yeah. And I think life can be very much like that. And writing is my way of making sense of all that and trying to put different elements together in a narrative that I feel myself I can make sense of. And, uh, and maybe other people will find something in the writing that I guess connects them as well. I think your humor and affection uh, for people definitely comes through uh, in your part. Yeah, with stitches, especially, I think it has a very sweet ending. And yes, it's just the interrelationships of people, like you were saying before about community. When you're writing, are you quite conscious about the relationships that you want to portray? That this is going to be a grand uh, granddaughter and uh, grandfather, and how that might evolve over time no I don't think like that when I'm writing what happens is that something fairly vague and then I'll add a bit of detail to it but it isn't necessarily I don't think I understand the relationships within what I'm writing about until fairly near midpoint I think they talk about story art don't they well you've got to have that sort of thing in poetry as well yeah and so I guess the story arc comes part the way through the writing and editing process yeah and I guess with the process we've spoke about the revision of it stripping things back putting things uh together you had that one poem which took 10 years and you know, 36 rewrites. How long would you say on average would a rewrite from once you've got the narrative, once you've gone through that midpoint and you go, okay, I know what this poem's about and where I want it to start, where I want it to finish. And it's just from that po- process to the actual refining, is it something that you try and do in a couple of sessions or do you have lots of poems on the go and it's just, they take as long as they take? I put them away for a bit. Mm. So I'll, each stage of taking notes, I'll put it away for a few days, maybe a week. And then I'll get it out again and I'll think, what am I talking about? Where am I going with this? You know, what are my thoughts? And then I'll write something that, maybe off goes off at tangents I go off quite a lot of tangents when I'm writing so the story starts building and I guess a lot of writers writing novels are the same then as I'm editing I may leave it for a couple of weeks and then I'll take it out again and I'll read it through and I would have thought a couple of edits down the line is when I would take it out and share it mm. with a live audience either online nowadays, obviously, and occasionally live. I never share anything with my family and friends. So they haven't seen my book until it was published. They may have heard some of the poems in uh, open mic, some of them performed, 
but actually they didn't have the opportunity to read them until the book was published. And I guess because I'm not writing for them and I don't want their influence, I'm not expecting anyone to say nice things about it because that's not what I'm writing it for, really. And I would say that maybe two-thirds of the poems in Fontenelle I wrote in the last 18 months. So some of them, I... I guess it's the time we've been in. I was able to immerse myself more than I would have done normally. But quite a few that I wrote for. The other process is knowing what you're leaving. Each time we write, it's what you leave out, isn't it? Mm. Taking things out. Some people really struggle with that, as do I. But it's the piece of writing that tells you what needs to be in and what needs to be out. It's almost having another entity that you're engaging with when you're writing. I never feel like I'm on my own. Even when I go and make a cup of tea, won't be tired anyone that comes to talk to me because that would be three in the conversation and it doesn't work because I think there's my inner thoughts and there's my physical writing and they're having this strong dialogue together. So that's how I know what to leave out. It's interesting because it was only a few weeks ago that Fontenelle was published, but that a significant part of it was written and completed in the last 18 months. I had no idea because this is your first collection. Mm. Um, Let's cover that for a moment. Just how did you uh, work on the theme of Fontenelle? And do you want to explain, because I looked up the word Fontenelle because I had no idea. I thought it's like it sounds French. So explain what the word Fontenelle is and how you came to group these poems for this collection. Fontenelle is the soft spot on a baby's Girl. I think I've always loved the word Fontenelle, so my first collection was always going to be called that. And some people said, oh, no one knows what it is. I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's a whole mystery. You don't know what's going on inside, even though you know the anatomy and everything. But knowing that the fetal skull changes shape all the way through the passage, and there's all this power going on at the same time, and then there's a birth. And I guess that's a metaphor for how I am in life in that you really got to be keep being open to change. Some idea what your journey is, no idea most of the time, but also we're not bringing all the power ourselves. It's all around us Mm. and putting the collection together. I guess the theme of caring was really big in everyone's minds. I'm really fascinated by the joys and complexities of caring. The other thing that I wanted to write about in it was that I've got quite a lot of family members who have got links to health and well-being. So I think I've been around health discussions and people being quite frank about things all my life. So I think I wanted to bring it together. And it's interesting because I've been told that A lot of spoken word poets tend to put their greatest hits in their first collection. Mm. And to me, it was about writing a story. So it comes across as quite a narrative. Mm. And yeah, that was important to me. And I did have help with editing it and discussions around sequencing. I'm really proud of it. It's got a lot of me in it, but it's got a lot of life in it and... It's, yeah, go out and buy it, read it, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> as for the next project, <laughs> bit of a plug. I've, I've started to write a novel. Oh, wow. 
and I've written 17 chapters, but I haven't touched it for about 10 years. I was going to a writing group and I they were quite open with me that you get a slot to present a chapter and then you get feedback to it. And I was writing each chapter for the next time my slot was there. Right. What was happening was a couple of the people noticed that I was changing my style of writing on reflection of the feedback I got. <laughs> and I guess what was really good learning for me and why I probably don't haven't shared much of this collection before is because they were saying that partly I was writing for the group who would give me feedback, but I was also, I wasn't really in touch with what my style was and my own voice. I was doing poetry and it, you know, poetry seemed easier to tap into my voice than writing a longer piece. And, and also one of the people in the writing group said, I think you you need a different group, Helen, because your novel is quite poetic and you write quite clipped. And yeah, I guess it came across that I was not putting much detail. I'm not one for detail, I'm mm. one for a different style of writing. And it was the best thing they did because I don't think I'd have got so far ahead with my poetry if I hadn't left the group. Now I feel that I've got my voice and I can protect my own writing better. Mm. I think that's really important as a writer. I absolutely love getting critique and that constructive feedback from people, but I've got to have done the writing first. Mm. And I think that's been, I'm, I'm part of a couple of writing groups and, and we do write quite spontaneously for that, but I think I had to learn to know my own voice first, yeah. and that took a long time. I'm far more confident with that. So I'd love to go back to my novel and also write some more about medical stuff, really. I've got a lot of textbooks from the 1940s from my aunt, and, and I think that's going to be really interesting looking at people and the comparisons. Yeah. I'd love to do some more collaborative stuff. And and I haven't got a theme for another collection, but I know that will grow. Okay. Yeah, so I'm just going to be completely open with myself. And I think just uh, bask in the success of getting your debut collection out. But yeah, knowing that you sort of 17 chapters into a novel is really exciting, even if it's been a long time coming. I think finishing projects is always a wonderful emotional experience, and I would love you to finish it, even if you don't share it for a long time. But having the ability to really develop your ideas in long form versus the punchiness of poetry, is that fulfilling on a different level, or is it just quite challenging? But you know, the timing's interesting because there's a lot of writers, there's a lot of novels that are coming out which are in a more of a poetic form, very short chapters. So I guess the, the Girl is a Half-Formed Thing was very much Dreams of Consciousness. But there's also um, quite a lot of the Japanese writers and it's certainly become very popular. A lot of people are not having the concentration 
to read the bigger, more formal types of novels are going to short stories and novellas. And I guess, yeah, there's there's many more books coming out that are short forms. I, th- I think probably the long form of writing and doing a full in-depth body of chapters was never my thing. And so it's really encouraging that there's so many writers nowadays that are writing to a different process, really. Mm. So that, and and I, I do think the literary scene has changed dramatically. Certainly the diversity of it is going to be carry on hammering away, but also you can be experimental and inventive and bring poetry and novels together. I think that's what's really exciting in literature at the moment. Yeah, and um, obviously with your love of collaboration, you mentioned before how some of your poems have been put to music and that you wrote song lyrics when you were younger. Is that another aspect that you might oh, explore? No, that's interesting because I didn't write song lyrics. I was deemed to be not bright enough to do literature at school. Oh. So I had a teacher, Mr Monday, who in my class used to play vinyls. I'm in, in my 60s now. Maybe you ought to share that with the audience <laughs> It was a while ago that I was at school and all the streaming was fairly strict. So you got streaming to do being certain topics. So I did language and part of the language was that we looked at song lyrics on vinyls. And I think that's been a, a really big influence because I never read any poetry by you know, dead white men, old men. Poets, and because I went straight into nursing, I had no reason to think about poetry and what a poem was. And it was only when I went to, after I burnt out, I went to kickstart your reading class. I'd forgotten how to read. And we were looking at short stories and then we chatted about them. And then one day the tutor said, Oh, you might like to write something. And I said to her, What do you mean, write something? She said, Helen, you can write whatever's in your head. And I was like, I can write whatever's in my head. And I put pen on paper and this explosion went off in my head and I've just been writing since. And maybe I just needed permission. So I wrote something and she said, oh, that's a poem. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I think it might be hard for the listeners to appreciate that because I never did Shakespeare or poetry at school. It was never on my radar and, and then my daughter was studying GCSEs at school and um, she shared with me Ad- Edgar Allan Poe and Lorca. And I was like, oh, wow, these are great stories. So I think I've always seen poems as stories. Maybe whatever I write in the future will still be stories, maybe quirky and visceral and to the bone with Nurse's sense of humour. But I'm really looking forward to seeing what the next phase is because you're right, I don't have that fear of failure, whatever I'm invited to do or I'm going to be judging poetry of school children soon. So whatever I'm being a poet, what is that really? (laughs) It's being a writer, what does that really mean? It can be so many things. It's so exciting. Well, yeah, that was um, something that was formulating in my head was actually... Do you identify as a poet? How does that feel as Helen Shepherd poet? Does that really feel your brand now? Is that a comfortable title for you to, to wear? I think at the moment, 
I think only it's only about a year ago that I, I started to say I'm a poet. And I guess that may change as I do more different types of writing to I'm a writer. But, you know, the amount of really established, well-known writers and poets really struggle identifying themselves and owning that word, I am yeah. a... So I might have been writing for 20 years, but it's only probably the last couple of years that I've stepped up. And it was interesting because when I burnt out, a friend said, it's happened a couple of times, but about seven, eight years ago, she said, Helen, chuck your job, take your writing seriously. Um, and I guess I'm learning to, within the humour of it all, yeah. take myself a little bit more seriously. And I think that's really hard for working class writers Mm. to step into that world where it's always seemed unreachable. But it is so important to make our mark and tell ourselves that we are writers and we are poets and that part of ourselves has to be really looked after and respected and applauded. It's just something that I was thinking about with everything that you've been saying and how I know that a lot of the times you identify as a nurse and a midwife because that was your career for the majority of your working life. And like you say, you know, there are very established writers and poets who struggle with the, the label of writer or poet. And I was wondering if part of your fearlessness was because you don't, you think of yourself as a nurse rather than a poet. But it's interesting to hear that you have made that tr transition in the last oh. year to say actually no I am a poet and you were saying just then how your friend was like saying jack in the job and focus on your writing do you feel that possibly part of your fearlessness might be that for a long time you it was an enjoyable hobby rather than a, any form of career in your head oh see I don't know that I've ever had it as a hobby okay I think what happened was that I was a total daydreamer and some people would say I was quite uh, otherworldly even though I held down a professional mm. responsible job and did it brilliantly there was always something else about me which this is going to sound really weird but I think I felt it wasn't wholesome and, and they can be some of the thoughts that we have perpetuating our minds. And I think I've squashed that part of me. And to so, be in touch with a different part of your being and let them loose and then learn to rein them back and understand them and get to know them. I'm talking like it's another part of another well, person. The thing that I want to ask is why... Um, it not being wholesome, what, why wholesomeness is important to you? Is that something that you feel you shouldn't be wholesome? I think it goes back to working class values. Working class values are to work, to be a good person and not really think about the reflective part and also having ambitions. And also, I think there was maybe less opportunity in my life growing up to be playful and and I think part of my growing up meant that some feelings and thoughts got a bit su suppressed and I guess we could 
talk all about what burnout and, and you know sometimes when you have to explode what comes out burning out to me has been the birth of myself as a writer mm. so how can I even think that, that was a bad thing that happened even though it took me many years to recover sometimes when we hit the wall that's when we discover the most intriguing parts about ourselves don't we that certainly was the case with me and it's it's been absolute full of wonderment so I guess it was always there it was always there and I didn't know about it or respect it or value it and and that's part about valuing ourselves as a complete person I'm sort of wandering off talking about that but actually it was a tough time but it's also been really brilliant that's great no that's really good how you're seeing yourself now and how yeah we we have to outgrow our our teachings and our learnings as children and discover who we are as adults and how yeah you had a very fulfilling career it fulfilled one part of you but like you were saying before it was almost like talking about two uh, different people and different parts of you I think the other part of it is it can be very draining. Writing can be exhausting, raw, lonely, isolating, hard work. It's hard work writing as well when you're shaping something. But at the same time, it's really important to look after that. And it's quite hard to protect and look after and nurture your creative side. I think there's probably... it's valued more nowadays I hope so anyway (laughs) and I hope that from children onwards that whatever their creative sides are that they're having the encouragement growing up to nurture that and get to know it Uh, and you're you're right it's never too late it's never too late I do want to ask actually I want you to say saying how hard writing can be have you ever felt imposter syndrome with your writing why because you're one of the braver people that I know but it's interesting if you've still had those experiences at all I think it's human nature to doubt ourselves isn't Mm. it and it's also human nature to think sometimes we're not good enough or we haven't you know and you certainly see it on um social media where people say, I'm not going to write anymore. I've had so many rejections, lots, whatever I'm writing is rubbish. For me, I just have this fundamental belief that whatever I'm writing is important. Mm. Even if it is a shopping list type poem, or I'm writing a thought down. As I said, everything out out of my head feels an original thought, and it is from everybody's. It's then where you think, no, someone else could do this better or someone else. And yeah, other people may. The writing of it is so overweighing any of those imposter type feelings. Yeah, some of the poems could be better written by some other people. But actually, it's I've written it. (laughs) It's my writing. And I've got to own that. And I think we're back to ownership, aren't we, again, really? And we just do our best. So. I don't know, it may be that I haven't had any of that, you've got to do better with your writing because I've never been, oh, that's interesting, I've never been formally marked on it. So maybe that takes some of the pressure off. It's it's just the fact of doing is success. 
whether it's well received or not it's secondary it's just yeah you wrote the thing yeah. and it's the process of creation that's really nice I have spoken to a couple of people who've had that but it's surprising that actually with people who are published and people who are deemed as successful not enough <laughs> I think it's not the majority that just yeah. love the creation for creation's sake almost you want to make it the best it can be but yes. just the absolute joy of creation because I think there's so much out there and I think when people are younger and maybe starting in their 20s for example that they're proving to themselves this is something they can do and yeah. this is something of merit and they're seeking validation in their yeah. writing and so there can be a fear and certainly the creative elements that I did in my 20s had a big fear of failure and I think if you're coming to it later in life you've had life failures and I think coming after mm -hmm. a burnout which actually I'll ask that as a question I won't make any assumptions did you have any feelings of failure when you had burnout I crashed and burned I think as in 2000 because I had a lot going on and the job was fairly full on. I guess my feelings of having to make the decision to stop being a midwife, so that was in 2000, was possibly the time when I think my fingernails were still gripping the walls <laughs> of midwifery because I loved it so much yeah. and I had to give it up for my own well-being. And it took me a few years to recover. And then I launched myself straight back into it and did all sorts of caring roles. And so then, so was, was there an element of grief in those years? Oh, huge. In yeah. fact, I think I've grieved more about giving up midwifery mm. than I have anything else in my life. And I guess the writing of Fontenelle is having had that huge distance and being able to go back into it and explore it with a different hat on. Mm. Um, as a poet, it's been re really, I guess, partly healing. Yeah. Although it's not that sort of collection, but there is an element of that for sure. And then I burnt out again in 2015, I think, and was very ill. But I'd had seven years gap of writing. So I know for me, writing, walking, going back to the beginning of our conversation yeah. is for my well-being, really. Yeah. Even though I don't tend to write. I guess, specifically, therapeutically. We're writers, aren't we? It is part of the big bag of it all, really. Yeah. I've always, on a personal level, thought of writing as a form of therapy. I think it's some things you read and it's far more explicitly <laughs> there on the page than it is with others. But it's all about forming ideas and working through concepts. And I yeah. think that's certainly something that comes across in your writing. And... It can be very therapeutic. And I think what I was getting at and asking about your burnouts is when you've had something which you've had to stop doing, that you've had to stop, and then you grieve that loss, that emotional journey, you know, you've survived it. Yes. You know, midwifery defined you for a period of your life, and then it mm -hmm. didn't. And then there was that loss of identity and yes. it's interesting how you were saying, you know, you were then looking at caring roles because you saw yourself as a caregiver. And now as a creative, it's a whole different...
different skill set. And it's rather than interacting with people, there is a lot of insulation when you're you know, writing off and you can't be around people, which is completely a different <laughs> way of working to, to how you were when you were younger. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, I think a lot of aspiring writers who listen to podcasts and are online at the moment perceived as younger and as people starting out, you always yeah. think of them as people in the uh, 20s and they're very aware of mental health and they're very and they can put a lot of pressure because they're they're still finding out their defining roles of their life and their creative output could be their validation but I think when you're coming to it later in life and you've had things that have validated you that are no longer validating you you've built up those emotional defenses and so it's just okay I've had a traumatic burnout and I survived it. I had a second traumatic burnout and survived yeah. it. I've got this skill set now. And I think if anyone's listening to this who has a fear of failure, don't let it define you. And yeah. I, I think that's a lesson that from this conversation, I think a lot of people when doing something creative want to be a creative and want to be a writer, but defining yourself as a writer can be very scary. Mm. so don't do it yeah and I think one of the things is that it's about expectations isn't it Mm. because when people have gone to university to do literature and then what's the next step what's the next step and oh I've got to be published I've got to produce a body of work and that's a, a fairly traditional way of going but it also comes back with massive expectations where do you go when you've either achieved that or not achieved that Mm. Um, I've been re- making um, podcasts, House Beat Poets podcasts. I'm just uh, yeah. plugging that one. Available on Spotify. Um, the reason why, oh yeah, brilliant. I started making podcasts because my daughter gave me a link on podcast training for the over sixes with Eugene Radio. So I did, I did a bit of training and then it took me six months to learn how to, um, I did some interviews with poets around their take on poetry and health and um took me six months to learn the techie side but it also kept me really connected during the last 18 months two years that we've had and I mean we talk about all sorts of things like addiction mental health menopause cancer all sorts of things and one of the poets said to me Helen you just got to show up and just keep showing up and and I thought you are so right whatever else is going on in your life to show up to your writing and scribble on that blank page just doodle on it just mess it up you know whenever I'm hesitating for goodness sake Helen just show up and it's been really helpful Mm. yeah absolutely and I I think uh, well actually one of the uh, questions I do like to end on is if there's one piece of advice that uh, you find yourself returning to when writing do, do you have something that you consciously have found as advice that informs your writing and would you say that just turning up would be yours or is there something else I think it's just show up and there's no holds barred when you can't sense yourself just chuck it down oh we've all written really dark stuff or <laughs> joyful stuff or playful things and traumatic things there's no holds barred well it might be interesting to know that a couple of years ago I just burned all my journals and burned a load of 
writing that I knew I wasn't going to go back to and I wasn't going to read and it was just sat there and actually that was quite liberating getting rid of old stuff and having a fresh start yeah those are my three things I think no that's great and I think that's a perfect time to end the interview but thank you so much Helen that's been so interesting and yeah a a lot to think about a lot to digest from that thank you for being a guest on the show it's been a total pleasure chatting with you Tom and thank you there was it was a really interesting questions and take on writing thank you you're welcome And that was the real writing process of Helen Shepherd. I hope you now love her as much as I do. And if you're thinking about adding a slice of chilli to ginger beer, just don't. Helen's weird. I love her, but that is not a drink for mortals. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Helen, her podcast, or to buy a copy of her poetry, you can check out her website, helenshepherd.bigcartel.com. I'll also leave a link in the show notes. I should add, the photo on her website isn't her latest official promo portrait. It's a picture from a few years ago that I took in the pub, and she's a bit drunk. Worth checking out for that alone, in my opinion. I should also tell you she's on Twitter, at HelenShepherd7. Anyway, that's it. That's the show. Season 1 is finished. 11 guests over 12 weeks, and I need a holiday. In fact, when this show goes out, I'll be on holiday. That's how desperately this holiday is needed. But don't worry, I will be back. Eventually. I've had some incredible authors agree to be in season two, so I will need to get on that. To be honest though, it's just been great how many of you have downloaded and subscribed to season one. I have no advertising budget. Uh, Still, literally hundreds of you found me through retweets and word of mouth, and I'm really chuffed that most of you downloaded more than one episode. I've also started a subscription site for the Uber fans over on Ko-fi. If you subscribe, there'll be trailers for season two, and the guests that are coming out over the next few months, so it's worth keeping an eye out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, you can just do a one-off donation as a tip of thanks, and very grateful, thank you. Uh, It's just to keep the show costs covered. Minimum price is a pound, and anything you can spare is wonderful. But if you monthly subscribe, you get every interview as soon as it's edited and done. No waiting weeks or months, you're the first in the queue, and often you'll get the episode before the guest is even announced so it's ultra exclusive and the price of entry one pound a month that's it i don't want to split my fans across wealth lines you can pay more if you want to support the running costs more everything i earn gets plowed into the show but if you want to support me then i want it to be affordable and i want you to get something that's worth the money i have ideas in case i start getting a lot but at the moment i'm getting nothing so (laughs) covering web hosting and the license for the music i use would be great. Uh, Speaking of music, I'm going to give a a shout out to Arch Tremors, who wrote the theme tune. It's epic, and I love it. It's why I always put the whole song on at the end. Plus, Lolo Gartman is an incredible singer. Just awesome, talented people. So, without further ado, until next season, my friends, and say it with me, or until the world ends.
Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and goodbyes. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its I have this 